You guys can turn to the book of Ephesians. That's where we'll be this semester. Before we start into Ephesians, though, let's review for a moment. From last week, for those of you who were here, why has God placed you on this planet? Why does Grace Bible Church exist? Why are we here? We narrowed it down to just one phrase with, with two key words. Both start with F. We help people find and follow Jesus. If you weren't here last week, there's your cheat sheet. Right there, write it down. That's the reason for your existence. That's why you're on the planet Earth. That's it. The big idea of your life is to help people find and follow Jesus. And so we talked about how our goal this fall, we're going we're gonna to join together. We believe that Jesus is calling each one of us, myself included, to take action on this, to help people find and follow Jesus. And particularly, to make this concrete, we're going to commit, each one of us, to initiate spiritual conversations this semester with at least two people who are far from Jesus. Okay, so what, what we believe is that Jesus has directed our elders to tell all of us what to do and that what he wants all of us to do, each and every one of us individually, have at least two spiritual conversations with people far from Jesus. I hope you're already doing that. My hope is that we will, we will multiply that by 10, that by the end of the fall, it's 20 spiritual conversations we're having. So if your goal in life is to help people find and follow Jesus, if that's what it's about, then there is no better book that you could use in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is actually a remarkable book. It is just six chapters, and yet it summarizes the entire Christian life. Ephesians is this amazing book that shows us how people can, can find Jesus, not because Jesus is lost, but because we are lost, and how they can follow him in every area of life. And the great thing about Ephesians is it starts in, in chapter 1 with really deep theology. I mean, we're going to get into predestination this morning, into the Trinity. starts with deep, deep theology, and then just in the space of six chapters, it moves all the way to your day-to-day life. Like, how do you relate to friends? How do you relate in marriage or to your parents or to your kids? It gets super practical. And so the book of Ephesians as a whole, it, it ends up laying out for you the whole Christian life. It helps show you how you can find and follow Jesus. And so as we thought about how to title this series, we chose the title Alive Together because the book of Ephesians is about how we find life in Jesus together. And we started this morning with just the word alive because we're going to talk about how we are made alive in the Father, Son, and Spirit. And then as the book continues, we'll see how that life in us is about us. It's not about you. It's about us as a family. It's not really about us as individuals. Okay, so we're going to see this semester how God is working in us as a family to help us find and follow his Son. Okay, so as we unpack this book of Ephesians and try to understand it this semester, I'm going to give you kind of an interpretive key that you just need to remember. This is just something to file away in your head if you want to understand this book as it was originally written. What you need to understand about Ephesians, it was written to believers who lived in a place where it was very hard to follow Jesus. Ephesus was a very hard place to walk as a Christian. I had the chance to visit the ancient city of Ephesus a couple years ago. It's in the modern-day country of Turkey on the western coast. It's not a modern city. It's just ancient ruins now. So you can still walk through the city as it would have been in Paul's day. And, and I took a lot of pictures to try to capture this idea of why it was so hard to follow Jesus in Ephesus. There's a, a few reasons. First, because there was idolatry everywhere. 
the, the city of Ephesus was built around idolatry. When you walk down Main Street, there were idols all the way down the street. There were temples every other building. So the whole city was full of idolatry. Here's just a couple of them. This is Nike, the goddess of victory, if you're wearing Nike shoes, or that's what it's named after. So the Ephesians would sacrifice to Nike to have victory, to have success. This is Hermes, the god who watches over shepherds and gives you good luck. So if you wanted good luck, you would sacrifice to Hermes. The greatest idol of all in the city of Ephesus was Artemis, or or the person the Romans called Diana. She was the goddess of fertility, and her temple towered over Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was up there with the pyramids in Egypt. Unfortunately, there's hardly anything left of it today. Earthquakes wiped it all out. What we do know is in the middle middle of this massive temple, there was a massive statue of Artemis. She looked like this, and she was covered, as best we can tell, with either breasts or eggs to demonstrate that she gives you fertility. And so the whole city worshipped Artemis to have fertility in their crops and in their livestock and in their families. And so here's the thing. that's We look at these statues and we think how silly these people were, how ridiculous it was, how easy it would be not to worship those, but it wasn't. Because idolatry was the fabric of life in Ephesus. Everything you did as a, as a citizen of your city was oriented and steeped in idolatry. So when you went to the government offices, guess what you did at the doorway? You sacrificed to a god. When you hung out with your Ephesian neighbors, and cel- like when we celebrate 4th of July, you get together with your neighbors and you party, guess what their 4th of July was? The annual fertility celebration to Artemis. The whole city gathered and carried her statue down to the water, to the harbor, to dip it in the water to give fertility to the city. So if you're going to say no to idolatry out of a desire to follow Jesus, that means you don't get to be part of your city. So they actually went and found their spouses at that festival. That's how you dated in the ancient world, through idolatry. So if you're going to follow Jesus and say no to idolatry, you're not going to have dates, you're not going to have relationships, you're not going to have businesses, you're going to be an outcast. So the city was full of idolatry. Second, the city was full of immorality. As you walk down the main street in ancient Ephesus, you see this sign. You notice it carved on the rock. It's a picture of a foot. That was directions to the brothel. It's right in the center of the city. Anywhere you are on the main street, there will be feet pointing you that way. Because it wasn't under the rug in Ephesus. It wasn't illegal. It was accepted. It was normal. Everyone did it. Because immorality was part of cultural life in Ephesus. Third reason it was hard to follow Jesus, because of persecution. We're told in the book of Acts, chapter 19, that a guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, and he made little statues of Artemis to sell to people to worship her in their home, that he found that when Paul came into his city and preached the gospel and people began to worship Jesus, they weren't buying his shrines anymore, and that made him angry. And so he gathered other silversmiths and and craftsmen, and they launched a riot against the Christians. They actually took them to this massive theater in the center of Ephesus, and they were going to kill them. They were going to beat them up right there. That's because being a Christian in Ephesus was incredibly unpopular. It was dangerous. You were going to suffer for that. 
So when Paul left Ephesus, he left Timothy in charge to be the pastor of the city. And Paul wrote Timothy some years after writing the book of Ephesians. And he tells Timothy in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering, Timothy, because in Ephesus you will suffer if you follow Jesus. So as we read this book, it's, it's not written to believers who live in a place like College Station, where it's relatively easy to follow Jesus. I mean, you go to Breakaway and you get a date. That's crazy. It's written to believers who live in a country like Afghanistan, where following Jesus is, is likely to cause you to lose everything, even your own life. So following Jesus in Ephesus was incredibly hard, incredibly costly. And so as Paul writes this book, he is encouraging these believers to follow Jesus when it's hard. So the question is, where do you begin? If you're going to write a whole book encouraging people to follow Jesus when it's hard. Where do you begin? Well, we'll answer that question by looking at chapter one. We're going to pick it up. Starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to verse 14. Now, usually I would not read all the way to verse 14. That's a lot to read. I would take a break and do this in in pieces. The problem is, you may not get this in Greek, this is one sentence in Greek. There are no breaks. Actually, from the beginning of verse 3 all the way to the end of verse 14, there's no stops. Paul did not take a breath. It is one long sentence. He got carried up. It's the longest run-on sentence in the Bible that I'm aware of or anywhere that I'm aware of. As I read this passage, it reminds me of my seven-year-old son, Luke, when he talks about Minecraft. He gets really excited and he doesn't stop for breaths. He He just has got to tell me all that he loves about this game. That's what happened with Paul. He got really stoked about what he's going to tell us about the Christian life. So excited, so caught up in that moment that he never stops for breath. So we have to read the whole thing as one sentence. Okay, so let's look. How does Paul start answering this question? How do you follow Jesus in a hard place like Ephesus? Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the sentence begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved one, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and Insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind of intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in whom also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in whom you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The end. <laughs> Paul, get, <laughs> I don't think I'm the one to get the clapping there. That's, that's all Paul. Quite a sentence. Paul lays out for us 
all of these verses to help us follow Jesus when it's hard. So where does Paul start? It's remarkable. Paul starts with gratitude. Did you notice that right from the very beginning? What does he start with? He starts with gratitude. He starts by listing all of the things you can be thankful for. You see that in verse 3. If you're going to circle any verse here, it's verse 3. It's a big idea. Everything before and after is built off of verse 3. You'll notice that there's a word repeated three times in verse 3, and that's the key word. That's what this whole thing is about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Bless, blessed, blessing, all the same kind of word in Greek. It's a very interesting word. It's used in two different ways here. First, it's used of of blessing going from us to God. Blessed be God. So let us bless God. When it's us blessing God, the word means give thanks. Give thanks. Be thankful to God. Say thank you to God. Why? Because God has blessed us. So that's blessing from God to us. When it's from God to us, it's not thank you. It's good stuff. Okay, so God blesses us. He gives us good things in the response. The logical response is that we bless God by saying thank you. I love that about this word. In Greek, it goes both ways. It's both the cause and the effect. So God blesses you. He gives you good things. And the logical response is you say thank you to him. Okay, so this whole passage is about God's blessing in your life and how you say thank you to God, how how you honor him with gratitude. What I'm amazed about is I look at this whole book and as I think about what the Ephesians were dealing with, I mean, all the persecution, the immorality, the idolatry, such difficulties that they're living with, Paul could have begun in so many places, like with a command, do this, or with a warning, don't do that, or, or he could have taught them something, or, or he could have exhorted them in some way. Instead, he begins with gratitude, with 14 verses of gratitude, and that's a lesson for us. When life is hard, what do you need to do first? You need to say thanks. You need to say thanks. You begin with gratitude. It turns out Paul was way ahead of his time. Modern research has caught up with the Bible to show us why that works. It's actually been proven conclusively that this discipline of gratitude, of saying thank you to God, whether you feel it or not, has an incredibly positive effect on you as a human being. Forbes magazine compiled a list of seven scientifically proven benefits of practicing gratitude, of saying thank you even when you don't feel thankful. It leads to better relationships. It improves your physical health. It improves your psychological health. It increases empathy and reduces aggression. It helps you sleep better at night. It improves your self-esteem and it increases your mental strength. In other words, gratitude makes everything better in your life. And so the challenge is when life is hard, when, when something has happened that's painful in your life, what God is challenging to you, to you to do is before you go complain to a friend, before you try to solve your problem, and before you ask God to change your painful circumstances, the first thing you ought to do is figure out something to say thank you for. That's always step number one. No matter what hard, painful things are going on in your life, the first thing you do is find something to say thank you for. Something to thank God for. And again, the key is even if you don't feel it. Gratitude is not about how you feel, it's about what you do. 
Gratitude is about making the choice to say thank you even when you don't feel thankful. Okay, so as Paul challenges these people to follow Jesus in an incredibly hard place, he begins with 14 verses of gratitude. He compiles these reasons to say thank you to God. So, so let's figure out what are we thankful for? What are the reasons that we should say thank you? What are the blessings that Paul points to? Now, the, the thing to notice, first of all, is what's not in this list. If you look from verse 1 through 14, there's a lot of things that you won't see. You won't see any mention of money. You won't see any mention of possessions. You won't see any mention of fame or beauty or popularity. You won't see anything about education or jobs or house you live in. You won't even see anything about physical health. You, you won't see any of those physical or material blessings. Why? Well, not because they're bad. Those are good things to give thanks for. That's good stuff God has done in your life. You don't see those in Paul's list because Paul wants you to understand priorities. Compared to the spiritual blessings you have in Jesus, all of your physical blessings pale in comparison. And so the thing for us to recognize is if you go on Instagram right now and you search for the hashtag blessed, what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see people on the beach. You're going to see a new car, a house, somebody excited about a job. All good things. But none of them measure up to the spiritual blessings you have in Jesus Christ. And so the the lesson for us to learn, the, the law, if you will, for us to learn, we just need to take this on faith. We need to make sure that our brains believe this about the world we live in. The poor, unattractive person who knows Jesus is better off than the rich, beautiful person who does not. Right? Okay. The whole world says no. We need to say yes. We need to just file that away in our brains and recognize the poor, unattractive, unpopular, unsuccessful person who knows Jesus has it infinitely better than the rich, beautiful, popular, successful person who does not. So it's a complete reorientation of what matters in life. What matters is these spiritual blessings that you have through Jesus Christ. What spiritual blessings? Well, Paul says in verse 3, every spiritual blessing. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have everything you need for life through your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul can't list all of those things. Really, if, if there was like a full list of all of your spiritual blessings you have through Jesus, it would be far more than six chapters. Instead, he just chooses three. Three particular spiritual blessings. And what's really beautiful, you're going to love this, he chooses one for each member of the Trinity. This is actually a Trinitarian passage. So he's going to tell us that, that we are blessed. Why? Because the Father chose us, because the Son redeemed us, and because the Spirit sealed us. Okay, so let's look at these three blessings, one for each member of the Trinity. So the first spiritual blessing that Paul unpacks for us here is we have been chosen by the Father. He uses this word chose in Greek. It, it means it's just to select someone or something out of a range of options. And so God chose you individually out of all possible human beings. He chose you. And, and the verb in Greek, it's conjugated in an interesting way. It reflects that it's a personal choice. 
In other words, God chose you by name, knowing you and everything about you. Okay, so, so God knew all options. He's God. He knew every person who would ever live, everything good about them, everything bad about them. And he chose you by name out of everyone. So that's the idea here. It's very personal. It's not a random choice. It's not an accidental choice. God knew all options. He knew everything about you. And he chose you by name. And to drive that idea home, Paul uses a synonym in the next verse. He says predestined. Predestined, it means to decide beforehand. In other words, God made certain decisions about your life beforehand, before you existed. Okay, so we're getting into this doctrine of predestination. So, so let's unpack it a little bit. Let's see what we learn from this passage about predestination, what's often called election. When did it happen? Well, Paul tells you, it, it happened before the foundation of the world. In other words, before creation. Before making anything, God already knew you as a unique person. He knew everything about you. He knew everything that is currently in your past as well as everything that is still in your future because there is no past or future to God. He knows all things at all times. So before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Why did he choose? Well, Paul tells us in two phrases to really drive this home. He chose you out of love, that's verse 4, and out of kindness, that's verse 5. The the motivation what, what happened in God that caused him to choose you by name? Love and kindness. Love and kindness. So not you were worthy. Not your performance. God didn't look into the future and see, hey, there's a pretty, good, pretty nice guy. I like him. There's a pretty great girl. I'd like to have her. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with you. It's not about your performance, your merit, how you stack up compared to other people. It's simply his unconditional love, his unmerited kindness. He chose you. By name. So that's why. To what end? What was God choosing you for? Well, two things. First, God chose you to be holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. That's, that's significant because I think often when we think about predestination, we're thinking about who gets to go to heaven. And so it's like God chose you to get to go, go to heaven. Well, that's true. You do get to go to heaven. But no, salvation is about so much more than going to heaven. We've talked about that a lot. Salvation is so much more to God. God chose you so that you would become holy and blameless like Jesus. That is the plan for your life. God is already doing that in you if you know Jesus. He's already growing you to be more like Jesus. He'll finish that task when you see Jesus face to face. So he chose you to be holy and blameless. Second, he chose you to be adopted as sons. Adopted as sons into his family. Now, I need to explain something. Those of you who are ladies out there, you might be wondering, why does it say adopted as sons and not adopted as sons and daughters or children? The reason is because of Roman law. Under Roman law, sons had more rights and thus more inheritance than women, than daughters. And so if Paul would have said adopted as sons and daughters, then ladies, you would have wondered, well, how does it work in God's family? Am I on the same level as the men in this room, or am I second class, like all women were in Roman society? Paul doesn't want you to worry about that. So he says, no, you're adopted as sons, all of you, men, women, we're all on the same page. We are all on the same level with God. We are all accepted into his family on the same terms with the same infinite inheritance. So we are all adopted as his children with full rights, with full privileges. He chose you for that. And, and again, I want to I push this home a little bit. He chose you, again, 
It's not about going to heaven. It's about being part of the family. That's kind of a, a reorientation for you. You need to think about salvation as less about destination and more about relationship. Yet you get to go to heaven. Why? Because your dad is there and you get to be with him. That, but it's not about heaven. It's about being part of the family of God. God chose you to be an eternal part of his family. It's about family. It's not about a ticket to go to a place when you die. And so you've been chosen to be holy and blameless and to be adopted as sons. Now, I brought up the subject of predestination. So I basically opened a big can of worms here on the stage. And some people are angry and some people are happy and everybody's confused. Because it's really a very confusing topic. And so I would be remiss not to try to spend a few minutes explaining this to you. So I'm going to do the best I can to explain predestination as I see it. But here's my caveat. I am sure I am wrong. I'm positive I'm wrong in what I'm going to tell you. Why? Because I'm sure there's no human being on earth who will ever understand predestination. It's too big for us. God is infinite. He is nonlinear. He is not bound by time. I'm none of those things. So how foolish to think that I'm going to wrap this little gray organ in this school around something as massive as predestination. So at the end of the day, I am sure that there are things I'm about to say that are not accurate. But this is the most accurate explanation I've ever heard. So I'm going to give it to you. Full disclosure, though, let's be humble. We don't really know. So how do I explain predestination? Best I know how is to lay out some facts for you from the Bible. So these are things that the Bible says are true. I'm going to give you five facts that you need to know around the subject of predestination. So fact number one, free will still exists. Some people in theological circles want to make you choose whether you believe in predestination or free will. That is a false choice. That's human beings making you want to choose because they can't figure out how both exist. I'm here to tell you, you don't need to figure it out. God has. They both make sense in his mind. They don't to us, and they may never. So predestination and free will both exist. Free will still exists. How do I know that? Because when a a man in Philippi asked the apostle Paul, how can I be saved? Paul did not say, well, hope that you're elect. No, he said, believe and you will be saved. You have the choice. Believe it and you'll be saved. That's the unanimous testimony of Scripture. Every person on this earth has a real choice to make, a real opportunity to believe. And and the choice that they make will be the basis of what happens to them in the future. So no person will be condemned in the end because God didn't elect them. They have a choice. Are they going to say yes or no to the gift made possible through Jesus Christ? So free will still exists. I don't know how these two things, predestination and free will, can coexist. I just know they do. The Bible teaches both. Second fact, Jesus died for all people. That's taught multiple times in Scripture. One verse in particular, 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation, that is the satisfaction for sin, for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. All people. When Jesus hung on the cross, he took all human sin for all people who would ever live, including those people who would reject him. He died for all sin. And so when we present the gospel to people, we are presenting a real and legitimate offer. You can tell every person on this earth, Jesus died for you. So believe. Because he did. Jesus died for all people. Gospel is available to all. Truth number three. 
God wants all people to be saved. We saw a verse last week in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, God does not want anyone to go to hell. God's desire is for every human being who's ever lived to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved through faith in the Son. So when you're preaching the gospel, the great thing is you don't have to worry about, is this person elect or not? No, you know Jesus died for this person and God loves them more than I do and wants them to be saved more than I do. God's desire is for the salvation of all people. Now, people will ask, okay, if God wants all people saved, then why didn't he elect all people? And to that I say, I have no idea. You'll have to ask God that. He does not reveal it in scripture. What I know is that he loves all and wants all to be saved. Fact number four, all people by nature reject God. Here's where it turns to bad news. We're told in the book of Romans chapter one, that every person who reaches a, an age in a, a mental maturity level that they can observe creation accurately, they see God in creation. They see that there is a God who is powerful and loving and, and should be feared and, and should be obeyed. And all human beings by nature say, no, I would rather worship myself. And so by nature, that's what we do. Why? Because we love sin. We love sin more than the creator, so we say no to him. We read a verse last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says that the God of this world, that is Satan, he has veiled the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see how good the gospel is. That veil is the love of sin. He's given them such a love for sin and for selfishness that they choose to worship themselves rather than trust in Jesus. So all people by nature reject God. That leads to the fifth fact. Salvation, therefore, is only possible if God initiates. And that's what predestination is. It's God taking the first step. Because human beings who love sin will never take the first step towards God. He's got to take the first step towards us. And so, before the foundation of the world, God took the first step. That's predestination. So, let me try to put it together. How do I see election working? Again, I'm sure this is inaccurate, but it's the best I can do. Before the foundation of the world, infinite time passed. God looked into the future and he saw all human beings. But here's the deal. As he looked into the future at all of humanity, he did not see a neutral humanity and choose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. No, that's not how it worked. Now, when God was in infinite eternity past, he looked into the future and he saw all human beings running towards hell. Because they all love sin and want nothing to do with him. And so in grace and in mercy, he reached forward and he grabbed hold of some whom he knew by name. And he turned them around, kicking and screaming to see the beauty and truth of the gospel and be saved. And I don't know why he picked you and not your neighbor. I know it's not because you were more worthy. It's not because you were more likely to believe. It's not because you were a better person. You're not. It's nothing to do with us. Out of kindness and love, God chose some of us, and we don't know why. We do know, however, that the whole purpose of this predestination thing is not to create theological debates or arguments. It's to give believers confidence. And that's the thing that we tend to forget here. Predestination is always taught to believers, not to unbelievers. You don't need to go share with an unbeliever about predestination. It's not for them. It's for you. 
How is it for you? Because the reality of predestination tells you that the creator knew you before eternity passed. He knew you and everything about you, the hairs on your head, everything you would say, think, and do in your past and in your future. Because again, it's all present to God. He knew it all and still chose you. So that means tomorrow morning when you wake up, if you do something utterly horrible, you cannot surprise God. Nor can you do anything that would cause him to revoke his choice of you because he chose you already knowing you do it. He had all the facts. And he had all the options. He could have chosen someone else. He chose you. Nothing you could do could ever change that. Your salvation was settled infinite ages ago. Not going to do anything today to change that. Predestination is all about security. So that's the first blessing that we have. We've been chosen by the Father. Second blessing. We have been redeemed by the Son That's verse 7 in him, that is in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood. Redemption means to to, uh, buy someone out of slavery. It's slave language. So Jesus, through his blood, dying on the cross, he purchased you out of your slavery to what? To the consequences of sin. You were owned by sin. You were a slave to the consequences of the sin. That's wrath. That's separation from God. Jesus delivered you from the consequences of sin by dying in your place, taking all of your sins upon himself. He erased our guilt, completely wiped away our guilt. That's what forgiveness means. Not just that God says, okay, it's paid and files it away. It's erased. It's gone. It's forgotten. Okay, so you have been completely forgiven through the blood of Jesus. What I love in, in this part of our passage is the words that Paul uses to describe the quantity of forgiveness that Jesus bought for you. So look with me um, towards the end of verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Lavished. It's the easiest way to describe it. It's very ironic. It's like a flood. It's a flood in your life. Jesus purchased so much forgiveness that it floods you. It drowns you in forgiveness. There's no way you will ever exhaust that forgiveness that Jesus earned from you. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's this beautiful passage. It's the idea that no matter how much you sin, grace is always more. You can't out-grace God. You can't exhaust his grace. Easiest way to think about it is if you go to a really nice Mexican restaurant after church today and they will give you chips and those chips are like the grace of God. You did not pay for them and you will never exhaust them if it's a good Mexican restaurant. So you will sit down at the table and before you have to say anything, chips will arrive and, and you didn't do anything for them. They're just there and you will start to eat them. And as they begin to get lower and lower, if it's a good restaurant, you won't even have to say, hey, can I have some more chips? It's just, it's there. Like just boom, you look up and there's a whole nother, whole nother bowl of chips. And so you eat that bowl of chips and then boom, there's a whole nother bowl of chips. And that's the grace of God. You can never exhaust it. You can't even get to the little crumblies at the bottom of the bowl before there's more of it. It always excels and goes beyond your sin. 
So Jesus has purchased this infinite grace for us. That's the good news of the gospel. When Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, that bought infinite forgiveness. That's why sinful people like us can spend an eternity with God because all of our sins are paid for. Okay, but, but God does not force that gift of forgiveness upon people. He leaves the choice with us. Remember, free will still exists. And so we must choose to say, yes. It's God, I want that. I'm done worshiping myself as God. You are God. I'm a sinner. I need you. I believe your son Jesus died for me and rose from the dead so I could have infinite forgiveness and eternal life. I want that. That's the good news of the gospel. So redemption is the second blessing that Paul mentions. Redeemed by the son. Third blessing, sealed by the spirit. Paul says in verse 13, In him, in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession of the praise of his glory. Sealed. The, the idea here is a wax seal that kings would use. You probably have seen pictures like this. Some cultures still use this. You would take a scroll or a document or a box or something that, that you wanted to say, hey, this is mine and you should not steal it or open it. A king would take hot wax and drip it on, on the joint between the box or on the scroll where it roped up. And then he would, he would press his signet ring, his king ring into that wax and leave his imprint. And that was actually a legal binding act if anyone broke the seal without the king's authority they were executed immediately and so god uses that terminology to say in your life you have been sealed with wax and the imprint is the holy spirit himself and so the only person who could break that seal is god himself who's already called you a son and so what this is about is security We are owned by the Spirit and that seal on our lives. The the Holy Spirit living in us is proof that you belong to God. Paul goes on and uses a second metaphor. The the Holy Spirit is is a down payment, a pledge. You know how a down payment works. So you want a car. Boom, got a car. You have to make a down payment. That down payment is a promise. It's a guarantee that you will pay the rest. That's what God did in your life. He gave you the down payment of the Holy Spirit to commit himself and show you, yeah, he's going to pay the rest. You get it all. You get all of grace. You get resurrection. You get eternal life with God in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. You get all that. And the down payment of the Spirit in your life is your guarantee of that. Okay, so we look forward to this day when God is going to redeem his possession. We're his possession in verse 14. He's going to come back and he's going to deliver us. Not only, we've already been delivered from the consequences of sin, but he'll deliver us from the presence of sin. He's going to redeem us. So, so what's going on there? Well, many of you have either worked in the nursery or you have dropped off kids in the nursery and you know that we put a sticker on your kid and we give you a sticker and that sticker is like the holy spirit it's proof that you're going to come back and redeem your kid don't don't leave your kid with us <laughs> you put the sticker on their back that means you must come back and get them well the holy spirit is that sticker on you it is god saying i'm coming back for you It's guaranteed. No one can change it. No one can take it away. You are absolutely secure. And again, that's so much of this is about our security, our absolute eternal security. You need never be afraid that there is anything you could ever do that could cost you your relationship with God that could make God hate you. That's not possible. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing you will spend eternity with him. John Mark, if you want to come on up, I was 
thinking this week about how do we end this sermon? How do we land this? I was trying to think about like some practical takeaways, and, and they just all felt too small. It felt like we needed to do something in, in the moment. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to sing a hymn together that's perhaps the most famous hymn. It's the doxology. It was written back in 1709 as an opportunity to do Ephesians 1, to actually say thank you to God. The beautiful thing about the doxology is it actually says thank you to each of the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we're going to do that now. So John Mark is going to lead us through the doxology, and then I'll come up and pray and dismiss us. As we do this, I want you to to sing the words, but more important than that, I want you to think about what you're saying. And I want you to take this moment to say thank you to God for all the spiritual blessings he's given you in life. Praise you. We give you thanks for you are worthy of all praise and honor. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you did not leave us in our sin and our rebellion, but you decided before time began to choose each one of us by name, knowing not only all of the good, but all of the bad we would ever do or say or think. And you chose us by name and you reached down into our lives and you took the first step. You initiated, you chose, you predestined. And the result is that we are in your family and we thank you for that. And then we praise you that at just the right time, You sent your son to die for us, to redeem us from the consequences of our sin. He gave his life for us. And now we praise you that the moment that we trusted in Jesus, your spirit sealed us, that he came into our lives to prove and to guarantee that we belong to you and will be redeemed one day when this life ends. And we praise you for that because we know that no matter how badly life goes for us, no matter what circumstances turn against us, no matter what what calamities come into our lives, we know that we have an eternity with you and your family because of Jesus, and we praise you for that. Lord God, you are so much better than we deserve. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for calling us into your family. Now we pray, send us from here to tell others the good, good news that there's a God who loves them and a son who died for them so they could be saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Stay safe.